Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe, a reporter here in our London offices. And each week we look at a big story from the US and what it means for the rest of the world. He's a thin-skinned political tough guy with a vast personal fortune and a keen eye for media manipulation. No, not Donald Trump. I'm talking about Vladimir Putin. Though, as it happens, Trump has a lot of nice things to say about the Russian president. He's running this country, and at least he's a leader, you know, unlike what we have in this country. The relationship between the two has returned to the spotlight after the Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton claimed on Monday that Russian intelligence services hacked into emails belonging to senior figures in her party. The emails, which were leaked by WikiLeaks, damaged Clinton's campaign because they suggested the party establishment was colluding to undermine her left-wing challenger, Bernie Sanders. Clinton said the hack raised serious issues about Russian influence in US politics. Other analysts have gone further and directly claimed that Putin is backing Trump because he thinks a victory for the Republican would destabilize the West and serve his interests. Trump and Putin both deny any direct relationship, but such actions would fit well with Putin's long-term European strategy, lending his implicit or explicit support to far-right and far-left groups and other opponents of the EU and the established order. Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far-right Front National, who will run for president of France next year, is a Putin admirer. I admire that he's managed to restore pride and contentment to a great nation. Le Pen's party is one of many outfits across Europe to have received funding linked to the Kremlin. So how does Putin choose his political friends and how much influence does he really have? Joining me to discuss this are Heather Williams, a lecturer at King's College London, with a focus on US-Russian relations and nuclear policies, who previously worked for the US Department of Defence and Jacob Parakilas, assistant head of the US and the Americas program at Chatham House, who has written extensively about Russia. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Just to start, how involved is Putin really in the US elections? Well, we still don't really know. The evidence hasn't come back conclusively that Russia was behind the DNC hack. Uh, It looks highly likely based on both technical aspects, which we can talk about, but also just for political interest. I haven't seen any evidence suggesting that he is funding Trump the way that we know he's funding Marine Le Pen, also, again, kind of indirectly through banks. But it does seem like Russia is definitely more heavily involved in this election than they've been the past ones. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that links Trump to Putin, but it is still pretty circumstantial. Uh, You have Paul Manafort, who's Trump's campaign manager, who previously worked for Yanukovych, who was Putin's favorite president of Ukraine and was deposed in 2013. You have uh, a variety of comments that Trump has made actually going back not just to the beginning of the campaign but back to 2014, 2013 that are very much in favor of Russian interests in Ukraine uh, and opposed to the general U.S. foreign policy line expressed with varying degrees of severity between traditional Democratic and Republican foreign policy experts. Uh, And you have a sort of general sense of fellow feeling between Trump and Putin. These, These are all very, as I say, circumstantial. 
natural. They're not direct links. And, and the evidence of direct links would depend on Trump being willing to open the books of the Trump organization or release his tax returns, neither of which he's been willing to do and neither of which he's indicated any, uh, any thought of doing. So I think we may only have the circumstantial evidence up until November 8th. And you mentioned there um, opening the books and that sort of thing is that if he were to willing to do that, why might that help us? what's going on. It would help us understand not only the sort of inner workings of the Trump organization and the source of his funding. I mean, the thing about Trump is that he doesn't have a record of public service. He's never held elective office. He's never been in the military. He's never been subjected to public vetting. So what we have in order to assess him and assess the links that he has uh, are his own statements about the Trump organization and its business practices. Some of that can be reconstructed from public filings, but as a privately held organization, we don't really have a lot of information about what its financial status is, how much debt it holds. There have been a few statements that Trump and his son Donald Jr. have made indicating that they've taken a lot of money from Russian interests. Trump, by contrast, said he didn't have any investments in Russia, but very, very specifically and carefully didn't say that Russia didn't have any investments in him. So again, there's a lot of stuff there that's sort of half a case, but the other half is missing and I doubt that we're going to see it. Also, I mean, as Jacob stated, you know, there, it is largely circumstantial evidence. And while Trump doesn't now have any business interests in Russia, he's tried over the past two decades to have business interests in Russia. He's just never been successful in getting a foothold there. And also, I mean, you compare um, that kind of business side of the interest to also this personal fascination that he has with Putin. And he's not the only one, but I mean, it's kind of, it almost seems bordering on obsession where so many of his messages, Trump is really mercurial. From day to day, you don't know what he's going to say. Putin seems to be one of the strange things that he's been pretty consistent on. And that even goes back to before the election, um, you know, in like 2007 interview with Larry King, he was saying how much he admired Putin even then and how he's doing a really great job at unifying Russia. So there is kind of this track record for Trump uh, in his admiration um, and trying to kind of get closer to Putin. And that makes sense because it's not just Putin. Trump has also expressed admiration for Kim Jong-un, for the Chinese leaders who put down the Tiananmen Square up rising in 1989. He has this very consistent record of speaking very highly of what the rest of us would call authoritarian governments. So Putin fits very neatly into that part of his worldview, even as his views on taxes and uh, abortion and a variety of other hot button issues have pinged back and forth all over the place. And because this is highly unusual, isn't it, for a US uh, presidential candidate or any other senior politician to be so kind of closely interested in Russia, or is it unusual? Um, what, what do you think is behind it? Why does he like him so much? It is unusual. And we can ask, why is Trump so obsessed with Putin? Well, you know, why are people so obsessed with the Kardashians? It's the combination, I think, of fascination and envy. And Putin is a fascinating character. Uh, he is an authoritarian. So by no means am I saying he's doing great things. But he is a fascinating person. And looking at his rise and his history um, and his background and what he has done in Russia in a relatively short period of time. Um, but also, you know, uh, Jacob mentioned Kim Jong-un. The way that we kind of caricature Kim Jong-un Jong-un, we do the same thing with Putin. Uh, at least some people in the West do. You know, there's this like, um, I don't know if you've seen it, there's a bear figurine of Putin riding a bear. These pictures of him, you know, snuggling with tigers or riding on, you know, swimming with dolphins. That there is this fascinating side to him. And at the same time, I think there is an aspect of envy to that. And that's probably also behind a lot of Marine Le Pen, Nigel Farage's ad admiration for him, which is that he's managed to consolidate power um, very highly centralized it. And that's something that probably a lot of these other politicians are envious of and they want to emulate if and when they could come to power. 
And it's worth bearing in mind as well that Trump's whole worldview about the US is America first. Now, he's been asked about the historical, obviously the 1930s American isolationism, sort of Nazi sympathizing group was also called America first. And he's trying to renovate the reputation of this, this term. Um, but his whole view of, of the U.S. place in the world is this idea that the U.S. should withdraw its sphere of influence and it should have a transactional relationship with even traditional allies like Japan and South Korea and NATO. Um, and I think he sees Russia as a country with national interests that it should take into account and that uh, Russia should basically be responsible for uh, Eastern Europe and the Middle East and that those are things that the U.S. is spending money on and doesn't get anything back from because Trump's view of international relations is incredibly financialized. It's about the direct monetary exchanges. It's not about shared values. It's not about long-term strategic interests. It's not about the things that foreign policy uh, professionals, again, on both sides of the U.S. political spectrum have basically agreed on, even as they disagreed vehemently on the specifics. So he comes from a very different tradition and he would be trying to take U.S. foreign policy in a very, very different direction, fundamentally different direction than anyone we've seen in 40 or 50 years. So there's some extent to which he almost might want to emulate Putin. In some ways, potentially, but I think that there's some potential, um, you know, conflictions within Trump's policy towards Putin and towards Russia more broadly that really could come back to bite him in the process of the election. You know, the majority of Americans, particularly the ones that support Trump, are do not support Russia. Um, recent CNN poll saw, found six out of ten Americans don't want a closer relationship with Russia. So um, Trump kind of is playing with fire a little bit with his supporters and coming out with a stance that goes very strongly against um, how they would feel on the issue. But also, I mean, for Russia, you know, a lot of Trump's policies do sound pretty fanciful. I think one of the most fanciful ones of all is his approach to Russia and saying, we will only negotiate with them from a position of strength. It will be a relationship, you know, say we're going to be equals, but then we're going to be the stronger partner in the relationship. That's not the relationship that Putin is interested in having with the United States. And I would love to, you know, hear some of Putin's responses to what Trump is saying in the sense of like, you think that we're still the Russia of the 1990s. We're not. You're not going to walk all over us. You're not going to um, tell us what to do anymore. Uh, but I mean, Putin really hasn't come out with much of a reaction to Trump. He's called him colorful. That's, uh, you know, but they've never actually met. So but I, th I do think that there is some potential here within Trump's policies that could undermine uh, some of his support. I think there's something to be said for the idea that the relationship such as it is between Putin and Trump is asymmetrical. I think Putin has probably expressed a lot less admiration for Trump than Trump has for Putin because, frankly, Putin probably admires Trump a lot less than Trump admires Putin. Putin is aware that Trump is, as Heather said earlier, mercurial. And yes, he's been relatively consistent with his praise of Putin, but his history is littered with people he's praised up until the moment that they got in his way and he decided they had to be destroyed. Look at his relationship with Ted Cruz over the primaries. They were best friends and then they ended ended up with Trump accusing Cruz's father of having helped assassinate JFK. I mean, it, it got intensely personal and intensely uh, negative. So I think Putin is, is aware that Trump would not be, even if he were to take the Oval Office, even if he were to begin an American withdrawal from NATO and sort of turning over of Syria policy to Russia, that he wouldn't be a reliable ally, that he would be capable of turning on a dime and becoming more hawkish than the most hawkish previous American president. Um, so I, I suspect Putin sees Trump as an agent that he can use to uh, 
introduce some disunity and some discord in the United States and keep the, the U.S. political system focused on its internal struggles rather than presenting a united front beyond the borders of the United States. Um, but I suspect he's a little bit worried about the possibility of what Trump would actually do in the Oval Office. I completely agree with Jacob that I think what Putin really wants to see a weaker United States. So for him, it's not personal. You know, a lot of the articles coming out say, oh, he has a personal beef with Hillary Clinton. I don't really think that Putin's the type of guy who would have personal beefs if he, ha if he saw a political opportunity. And he just wants to see a weaker United States um, as I said before, he doesn't want Russia to, to be treated the way that it was in the 90s. And from where, from Moscow's perspective, the U.S. will be weaker with a Trump presidency than with a Clinton one. So while he may not be directly backing Trump at this point, it would be more in Russia's interest to see a Trump presidency. So is this then, both in terms of the potential for losing some support domestically and also for the fact that he may have underestimated Putin and his abilities, is this a slightly crazy way to be going about foreign policy for Trump? You know, should he really be uh, expressing all this support for Putin? Uh, I think, I don't think it gels with the um, with the base that he is trying to appeal to and that he's had support for, um, from thus far. That the, I mean, the majority of his supporters, um, you know, well, it's hard to say what, what Trump, Trump supporters actually are because so many people, at least that I've talked to, it's not that they're voting for Trump, it's that they're voting against Hillary. At the same time, uh, you know, this is going to be an election that I think is largely, a, you know, kind of like Brexit was. It's going to be a vote on the establishment. And so, you know, Putin, um, Trump's position on Putin, I don't really see this being a definitive issue in the election. Jacob might disagree with me on that. There's, there is, I think an authoritarian strain in American politics. And in this case, in this particular case, I think it's mostly been expressed in the part of the right wing that's come out, that came out for Trump early, that supported him throughout um, what's often called the alt-right. Um, this sense that Putin is a strong man, that, you know, he's, even if he is to be opposed, he should be emulated, that he represents some kind of strength. Those people were already in the bag for Trump when this stuff started coming out. I don't think he expanded his base. Similarly, the US foreign policy elite, both Democratic and Republican, were already heavily opposed to him. Not that that's a huge voting block, but they are opinion formers. They do you know, have greater than average influence within the halls of power in Washington, DC in terms of uh, official endorsements and the big financial donors and so on. Um, I don't think that if he had come out with a relatively standard line against Putin, he would have brought the sort of Elliot Cohens of the world back into his camp. So I don't know that this really – this was beneficial to him in any way electorally. I think it was um, – it's, it's a representation of his belief sort of taken – carried out to the ultimate extent. And it represents a, a minority viewpoint within the US that was already – basically supportive of him. So I, I really don't see any advantage to this approach for him in terms of sheer electoral math. And we've talked a little bit about potential disadvantages here for Trump of this approach. Uh, what about Putin? You know, we, as we've said, on the one hand, uh, he might think that a weaker America under Trump would serve his interests. On the other, Trump is very unpredictable. Um, would, would a Trump presidency really be all that good for Putin? I tend to think that the ideal outcome for Putin is Hillary Clinton winning by a whisker and Trump uh, using the opportunity to go on a rampage against the rigged system and spreading disunity and spreading the sense that the United States government isn't actually representative, that it's not a democracy and it's not a republic. Uh, I think that 
for Putin is the is is the goal to have a United States led by a relatively conventional leader, but with a th- fundamentally weakened political system and distracted by uh, the sense of just no, no longer having a shared purpose outside of America's borders. I think that would be the the ideal outcome. If you, I mean, and I'm I'm speculating pretty significantly here. I doubt Putin actually wants Trump in the Oval Office precisely because of the unpredictability. What Putin really cares about are domestic politics. That is his biggest concern is um, the unity and stability of Russia. And so he has to walk this very delicate balance of both directing and shaping the story and the narrative coming out of the Kremlin, but at the same time responding to uh, what people want. And Russians overwhelmingly from the polling, I mean, it's hard to trust Russian polling, but from the journalism and the polling that I've seen, Russians want to have a closer relationship with the United States. At the same time, again, they want it to be a relationship of equals. And so for Putin, the question then becomes, which of these candidates is more likely to give me that those things so that I can take it back to my domestic audience? And as you said, I mean, Trump's a, Trump is a risk, is a big risk because he is so mercurial. And so while for the time being, he might seem promising because he'll weaken the U.S., it's a really big risk for Putin to take. And he's not a huge risk taker. But Trump has been quite directly pro-Putin in some areas. He's, he's sort of defended him on some aspects of Crimea and Ukraine or appeared to. I mean, he would, he would be a loud voice that's much more sympathetic to Putin than any other Western government, surely. I think the the issue that Putin has got to bear in mind is that Trump would be facing a lot of institutional opposition. Because Trump is such an outlier, he would have to override the defense bureaucracy, Congress, uh, to a large extent, American public opinion, if he actually were to try to pull American forces back from here, to give Putin any actual opening that he, Putin, could actually exploit, um, Trump would have to fight a massive battle domestically. Now, he might win that battle, and it might be that uh, the Congress would be as pliable as the Republican Party turned out to be when Trump sort of sets his mind to uh, barreling ahead with his own priorities. Um, I personally don't think that that would be the case. I think he'd have a much harder time governing than he did winning the Republican nomination. Uh, But in the process, he would just, he would sort of gum up the works rather than creating an opening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For Putin. Um, and I don't know that the unpredictability in Putin's calculation is worth that sort of slow pulling back, slow and probably interrupted pulling back of American forces and American interests. And it's the bigger question with Trump, not just on Russia, but on so many different um, policy issues, which is, would he actually implement the policies that, well, he's not really talking about policies right now, but the positions that he's taking right now, if he were president, would he actually implement those? Would he try to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it? Would he ban Muslims from the United States? Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on, and these aren't really policies, but, and so this idea of reaching out to Russia 
you know, turning NATO into just a counterterrorism organization. Uh, it's really hard to know if he would actually do these things. Based on the, the people that he surrounded himself with on the Russia front, it does look like he would actually try, um, as Jacob said, he would try to build those um, stronger relations. So let's look at Europe, where Putin has expressed support for both far-right and far-left parties outside the mainstream, often with an anti-EU focus. Alina Polyakova, deputy director of the Eurasia Centre at the Atlantic Council, a Washington-based think tank, said that many of these parties appreciate the Russian premier's backing. Russia has developed increasingly more public links with the European far-right. And far-right leaders, for their part, have consistently expressed their admiration particularly for Mr. Putin in public comments. Marine Le Pen, the leader of France's Front National, has been vocal in her praise of Putin. Le Pen has also twice applied for Russian funding to get her party through elections. What is Putin and Le Pen's relationship? What's the history of that? Uh, As you said, the Front National, um, they applied for this loan from the first Czech Russian bank back in 2014 for 10 million, approximately 10 million dollars. Um, and it looks like Marine Le Pen at least wants this to be an ongoing sort of financial relationship with, and she's going to ask for an, an additional loan uh, from the bank in the future uh, for the 2017 election. But what Putin's really doing in by engaging with these far right groups is it's kind of similar to his approach to the U.S. He's trying to sow weakness from within. And he's trying to undermine any sense of European unity because in his mind, he's going to get away with a lot more if he's up against a um, disjointed Europe. Uh, But also, I mean, Le Pen has acknowledged Crimea. She's come out and said very similar things to what Trump had said. You know, I admire him. He's a really strong leader. Nigel Farage also said similar things. Uh, So, you know, Putin's an opportunist. If he sees somebody coming out and supporting him and he sees it as a way to undermine the political unity that exists as fragile as it may be in Europe, he's going to take that opportunity and take advantage of it. And I think the interesting thing to note there is that he hasn't had any ideological consistency aside from anti-EU sentiment in the parties that he picks because Russia Today and the other Russian propaganda organs have also been generally pretty favorable to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, And Corbyn has nothing in common with Marine Le Pen aside from a sort of general Euroscepticism and uh, more willingness than the traditional European center of political gravity to give Russia its space and sort of allow them their their freedom of movement in Eastern Europe and certain parts of the Middle East and the Caucasus. I think you see that there's no consistency. There's a, there's a sort of strategic shamelessness, if you will, in the the way that RT and other Russian propaganda organs actually support these people because they're they're they have their hand pretty firmly on the scale in favor of Corbyn's Labour Party and at the same time of the Front National, which there's no ideological. There's almost no ideological. I should say almost no ideological because I think I think if you think of the political spectrum more as a horseshoe and then RT kind of sitting in the the middle part of the horseshoe pulling at the the extremes on right and left in order to weaken the center. I think that's the way that that this organization and this sort of strategy actually works. I'd really like to come on in a minute to talk in detail a bit about RT and about this wider Europe strategy. But just before we do, on this issue of funding, um, say, take the Front National, this isn't a case of Putin getting out his checkbook and sending it in the post, is it? I mean, how does how does this work? This is through banks. and, and Yeah, so I mean, they're through Russian-backed banks. Uh, this is kind of getting into the black hole of how linked are these financial institutions to the Kremlin. 
I would assume that I don't, you know, I would assume that they are pretty closely linked. Um, it's kind of similar. I can't help but wonder if it's similar actually to the hack of the DNC, which is would that have to be some directive coming straight from Putin and in the Kremlin? But specifically for the um, Marine Le Pen, um, the loan that went out, they, there were some intercepted text messages from these two, you know, insiders in the Kremlin saying, oh, you know, she's, um, she's lived up to our expectations. Okay, give her the loan. So there does seem to be some pretty strong evidence suggesting that if, you know, Putin might not have dirtied his hands in dealing with it directly, but that people very close to him were pretty close, intimately involved. But this is the brilliance of, if I can use that word, of, of this kind of strategy. It's effectively political guerrilla warfare. Because if you want to, in conventional warfare, you have to have an objective. You have to be able to communicate that objective to your formations of troops and say, right, we're going to take this city. So we're sending the armor division around, flanking to the right, and that sort of thing. But with a with guerrilla warfare, the objective can be as simple as make life difficult for the enemy. And then you spread that out to the cellular organization that you have without giving specific commands that weakens you to discovery and disruption. And those those cells just go out. And, and you see that with the sort of uh, the troll armies that Putin has, the, the um, armies of internet sort of faceless eggs on Twitter and that sort of thing who, who you know, post endless things about how, uh, you know, in, in favor of Trump, in favor of the Front National, in favor of anti-establishment parties across Europe and the United States. And the point isn't, again, to sort of create a specific political objective. It's not necessarily to get someone obje- elected. It's to just make things more difficult for Western democracies to actually function. And this totally gels, I think, as well with operations in Ukraine and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, which is you see this total, you know, it's like a blurring of domains where what is conventional warfare anymore from the Russian perspective? You know, Russia has this Gerasimov doctrine, new generation uh, warfare, whatever um, label you prefer for it. But that what that looks like, it starts off as very as non-kinetic. And it's an informational struggle is how the Russians refer to it. And then you take advantage of that as much as you possibly can. And so this indirect involvement would totally gel with the Russian approach to conflict more generally. And um, we've mentioned a couple of times that there's a sort of certain ways that Putin pushes his propaganda through Europe. We've mentioned uh, Russia Today, RT, a media network. There's another one called Sputnik. Could you talk a little bit about what these are and, and how this works in Europe? So Sp- Sputnik's the one that I um, guess I, I am for more familiar with, and it's just a Russian-backed news organization. It's a pretty uh, swanky website. It's actually quite user-friendly if you ever want to go check it out. Uh, but the stories on there... Uh, you know, they, they post stories pretty regularly. It's a pretty fast-producing news organization. But they range from things that seem as if they could be somewhat objective to very outlandish op-ed pieces. There was one published a few days ago that was attacking Garry Kasparov, this, um, you know, Russian dissident. And it just took this incredibly passive-aggressive tone to him. And it, you know, it said, really, Gary, are you really doing this? And so you have that. But then uh, you also have uh, – there was a story that also came out yesterday about 400 Russian troops defecting because they were sick of fighting America's wars. So that there might be some truth to that story, but the underlying message and it just all feeds into this narrative. And such a big thing for Putin is controlling the story. You know, he's always written his own story. It's very similar to, you know, how Stalin used to cut out people's pictures after he had them, uh, you know, uh, removed, so to speak. And Putin's kind of doing the same thing, but in a different way. You know, he controls the narrative about his own background. And so these news organizations are just another tool for doing that. 
I agree with all that. I think the the thing to note about the these news organizations is how well funded and slick they are. And there's this is a U.S. example, but you had a number of after the the Crimea uh, in, invasion and annexation, there were a number of American RT anchors who very publicly quit. And after that, there was an investigation of sort of how are these, you know, young sort of talented American journalists ending up working for RT? And it turned out that simply RT was offering twice as much money as anybody else. So if you came out of, you know, undergraduate with a, a journalism degree, you could get $20,000 a year to go work for a small uh, independent, doing general assignment reporting for a small newspaper in a small town that maybe you have no connection to, or you could get paid fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year to be an RT on air on air personality and interview leading newsmakers and sort of you know have all this the sort of um, window dressing, if you will, of being a star almost immediately, and that's a really appealing uh, it's a really appealing alternative now. Subsequently, a lot of those people came back and said, actually, there was a very strong editorial line. We weren't allowed to criticize Russia. We were sort of advancing a specific narrative. And I think a lot of them have found it difficult to find employment with non-RT sources afterwards. But the the point is that they're clearly willing to throw a lot of money at these organizations. And as Heather pointed out, the websites are very slick. The production value is very high. The videos are, you know, they're they're quick, they're pacey, they're, they have sophisticated graphics. And that stuff is all really important because as much as we like to say, you know, we are intelligent be- creatures and we, we actually, you know, consider the, the value of something without thinking about production value. Production value matters. People pay attention to things that are well produced. And what's his kind of end game here then with all of this European strategy? We've talked a bit about individual politicians he's backing. We've talked a bit about uh, some of the ways he pushes his propaganda. What's he trying to do in Europe? You know, does he want to see the EU collapse? What, what does he want, do we think? Possibly. Uh, I, I think he just wants to see a weaker, more disjointed Europe because he figures he's going to have a much better chance of promoting his interests uh, if he's up against individual countries as opposed to the EU as a whole or NATO as a whole. Um, we've also seen, I mean, he's doing, um, you know, doing things right now with NATO where take, trying to take advantage of some disagreements within NATO and, you know, the French and the Germans, for example, uh, aren't, uh, you know, they're a little bit more reluctant to take a really harsh uh, stance towards Russia, whereas the other members of NATO um, are. And, you know, for now, I think NATO is doing a really good job of maintaining a coherent message. It came out with a really strong message of the Warsaw Summit, for example. But ultimately, Putin, if he can, I think his strategy is, if you can create this dissent from within, get them disagreeing with each other, then they'll be so distracted with those things that they just won't have the energy or the will uh, to challenge when I, you know, if there's another uh, Ukraine, for example. No, I agree with that. I mean, I, again, I don't think there's a sort of master plan f- for Russia to sweep West and take Europe and, you know, reform the Soviet Union. I think, as Heather said earlier, it's much more about domestic politics. It's much more about securing Russian domestic sort of stability, restoring Russia's economy, and having the sort of first level of influence in Eastern Europe and Central Europe. And I think the way to do that isn't by creating a specific political outcome. It's simply about disrupting and creating disunity and disjointedness um, and preventing the emergence or the sort of prevalence of a a force or political will that could actually oppose uh, any kind of Russian self-interest. And is there any precedent to this or any other example? Are there other leaders who, in a similar way, adopt in this kind of disruptive tactics in other countries that they view as, as threats to them? Maybe not in Europe, you know, maybe anywhere in the world. 
I don't know that there's another example where it's being done as globally, as sort of assertively as Russia. Um, certainly, I think uh, China has used elements of this strategy. Um, I think China's information operations, its uh, world, its sort of non-Chinese language, externally facing media are not as – they're certainly pro-Chinese. They're certainly sort of advancing a narrative. I don't think, my sense very much isn't that they have a strategy to use information warfare to undermine political unity in anything like the same level of um, cohesiveness that the Russians do. I think you find examples of it. I mean, Iran, for example, uses press TV in much the same way. Press TV is not as sophisticated as RT. It's not as um, it's not as wide-reaching, but and it does... And that's the, just to explain, that's the Iranian state news channel, right? Yes, English language. So you do see a lot of the same backing for anti-establishment parties, regardless of other ideological leanings on press TV. Um, but again, it's not as it's not as sophisticated, it's not as wide-ranging, and it's not as ambitious. I mean, who else does this? The Russians would say that America does this and that the UK does this with the BBC World Service. And that, you know, in the past few years, you've seen this huge crackdown on foreign entities or foreign think tanks within Russia. And, you know, I, we were talking before about, you know, the informational struggle and the blurring of these different domains and whatsoever. And the Russians claim that it was the U.S. that started that. So from their perspective, it's the U.S. that's been trying to undermine, you know, Russian domestic sentiment. And Putin even came out, he called out Hillary Clinton and he said, you know, her comments, uh, I think it was about, was it about Crimea, where he said that she was, you know, trying to undermine the credibility of the, of the Kremlin or something like that. Uh, so I, I, I don't really agree with that narrative. But I think what makes it a very uniquely Russian and uniquely Putin thing is this, it really is an obsession with controlling the story. And and this um, crackdown on the foreign entities, I think, is one of the biggest tragedies because it's becoming a lot harder to find out what's actually going on in Moscow. But in that sense, that's really one of Putin's biggest domestic objectives. And to throw it forward then, how successful is he going to be at these kinds of strategies? Is this going to be a gradual growth of Putin's influence in the West, a growth of this destabilization, or, or is he is he not that good at it? I think part of the problem is that this is the kind of it's it's a, a bit of a Pandora's box. If the idea is to disrupt the idea that there is a an objective truth, if the idea is to sort of sow dissension, that's great insofar as you know it's effective insofar as sort of uh, creating political disunity goes. It's much harder to turn that then into an affirmative case for your own interest. Um, so I think it's a. It's a sophisticated tactic. It's potentially a dangerous tactic, but I don't think that it's a, a tactic that will ultimately create a sort of Russian narrative that is unassailable because it's it's self-limiting. It, you know, you're undermining people's willingness to believe in a, a shared set of facts, and when you do that, you're also limiting your own ability to advance your own narrative. So I, I think there are. There are real dangers to it, but I think there are also hard limits on what it can accomplish in terms of actually object advancing Russian strategic objectives. And I think as swanky as Sputnik News might be, it is pretty heavy-handed where, you know, I mean, I go and read it, but I read it, you know, just to try to see what's the narrative that the Russians are trying to push out today. I'd be really curious if anybody actually buy is buying into this narrative, uh, so to speak. But in terms of how successful is it going to be in the future? 
I think we need to remember Russia has a habit of coming back to the to the West and wanting to be a partner. And you see that in the public opinion within Russia right now, that people eventually are going to want a closer relationship. So I usually think of Russia as the swinging pendulum where it goes from wanting to be, I mean, this is, goes back centuries, where it'll want to be really close to Europe and it's part of Europe and it has these close relations. It was only 2009 was the U.S.-Russia reset. And then all of a sudden it swings back to the other end um, extreme of the pendulum and it's very inward looking. We're very uniquely Russian. But historically, it's going to swing back at some point in time. And in that sense, you know, Putin controlling his narrative could get really hairy and complicated. But for the time being, I don't I don't see it being particularly successful. Thank you for forcing yourself to give those predictions there. So um, I think we'll uh, wrap up there. Thank you very much to Heather and Jacob for coming. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. Um, You can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, Or if you can't wait that long, you can pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or you can go to newsweek.com. Thank you. Thank you.